Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tech Chat. My name is Russell, and I have Dr. Pete with me as well. Hi, Dr. Pete. Hey, Russ. It's great to be back on the show, and hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Pete. Pete, what do you what do you think you're doing? Who is this? Who are you? This this is this this is the real Russell. Who was oh, the imposter at the beginning of the show? Man, that must be Russell 2.0. I think I think you're trying to replace me, Pete. I think you went to the poly service. Looked up the Australian male voice, also called Russell, and used him. I think I may have. Have I been caught out? You have been <laughs> caught out, yes. Shame on you. Yes, well, look, you know, uh, we might be deprecated in the near future, but uh, I think we've still got a bit of a long way to go. Um, I prefer the real Russ. Thanks. Thanks, Pete. Nice of you to say. <laughs> look, before um, we really launch into the show... Um, yeah, just uh, wanted to give you guys a bit of a feel for what it's going to look like in the future. You know, Russell and P 2.0 might be taking over the show. That's right. So, uh, in fact, you could even change us to uh, to different voices. We could maybe do female voices as well, if you like. We There's certainly could the, have. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the poly service has got 47 voices, Pete. Yes, in 24 different languages. So you can select the voice of your choice. Um, it's actually a very, very powerful um, text-to-speech service that we've actually made available. And you only pay for what you use based on a character basis. So uh, the shorter the bits of text that you want pronounced, uh, the more cost-effective it is. And uh, if that wasn't enough, it also supports the, uh, the speech synthesis markup language, or SSML, which was uh, redified some time ago. Um, for being able to create, um, you know, uh, tags that customize and control the way you speak. So, in fact, um, if you do use the Poly service, uh, it has the idea of being able to create lexicons as well, which are really useful for things like aliases and pronunciation. So, if you ever try to do a text-to-speech of our IM messages, uh, where you've got, you know, people typing G-R-A-T, which is meant to be great, um, you can create substitutions and aliases, essentially, uh, that can be pronounced the right way. Yeah, that's great. The pronunciation one's a big one, I think, too, Pete, where if you've got a particular word that you need the service to pronounce differently to um, to the way it looks on the page, um, you can put that into the lexicon so that, um, again, it just sounds as natural as possible. Yeah, it's pretty powerful because the use cases are fairly broad. You know, you can use them in call centers um, for, for you know, digital announcements, uh, in your IoT applications, um, you, know, uh, you know, if you're creating, um, you know, learning content for folks, um, uh, as well as accessibility for those that may not be able to see or actually um, visualize what, what, what you're trying to convey. So it's yet another, uh, you know, it's a multimodal interface to your applications. And the pricing is really cool because uh, it's only uh, four bucks per a million characters, which is a heck of a lot. Yeah, so to, to give you some kind of context around what that what that means, if you look at the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, mm-hmm. uh, a, a classic, yeah. uh, there's around 13 hours of, of speech there if you read it aloud, uh, and that would cost you about $2.40 if you if you read that whole thing through, Polly. Wow, and uh, yeah, and that's 13 hours of life you could actually claw back and let the service do it for you. So yeah, it's very cost effective. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Now, Russ, I also, um, you know, it seems that every show we have at the moment... Um, there's a special region announcement. What's this one? This one is in London. Mm-hmm. So London's out. gone live. Uh, so that's uh, 
obviously in uh, in Europe as well to join the other regions we have in Dublin and Frankfurt, um, and that happened overnight. So that's very exciting. Which is very cool because we had pre-announced it about twelve months ago. Uh, it's great to see these regions are uh, dropping almost every time we release a new show. <laughs> Cool. And look, while we're speaking about uh, digital assistance and uh, things like Polly, we've got another wonderful service called Lex. Now, um, think of it as, uh, think of Alexa and drop the first A at the start and the last A and you get Lex. So um, this is really the um, uh, part of the service uh, which allows you to uh, build you know, conventional interfaces into essentially any application which uses voice and text. Um, so what you can do is you can basically pass in uh, a voice sample or a, uh, a, t- a message from a chatbot perhaps uh, and have this service um, give you, you know, insight as to what actually has been submitted. That's right. And I think the idea here, Pete, is that you have, you have an intent uh, yeah. and an intent is really the action that you want performed or, or that the user wants performed, such as to book travel uh, or, or to book movie tickets or whatever it might be. And then you use that intent to then specify slots that you want the uh, the service to basically prompt for to make sure you get the information from the, the user that you need. Exactly. And for those of you who've had a go at building Alexa uh, skills, uh, you would be pretty familiar perhaps with this idea of these slots where essentially, you, you know, when you say something, you would say, set a timer for and you would say a particular time, yeah, these slots, these parameters would be collected. So the service actually simplifies the way you could go about building, um, you know, a whole bunch of a whole new range of voice enabled applications where those intents and the parameter slots are being pulled out. Um, and we make that, we take all the heavy lifting away from you trying to figure out, um, you know, what was actually submitted as a parameter. And we pass those over uh, back to you um, so you can take, you know, appropriate code actions in your application. That's right. I think the interesting thing about Lex, and, and you'll see this as, as we talk through some of the other new services as well, is that Lambda is really starting to be the, the, the integration point between a lot of different services. And that's certainly the case with Lex, that Lambda is the integration point into, say, your enterprise systems or other AWS services, etc., so that you can kind of pull other information or pass um, other actions onto other services as well. And look, there are lots of things happening at the moment, like chat ops where you know uh, developers for example are, are using things like slack uh, or you know some kind of a you know an im interface to be able to control their infrastructure so you could certainly um, use this new, new service or so use lex uh, to be able to help you uh, better understand what is being communicated either via voice or via messages and you know through the use of intents and parameters um, you can actually get access to what's been submitted now if that wasn't enough uh, we've got another service for us called recognition which is very very cool that's right, and this is uh, this is not so much to do with speech. This is around images, Pete. It is, and look, you know, it's essentially around being able to, um, you know, we've done a lot of deep learning into computer vision analysis, and uh, now we've released the uh, recognition service. And what it will help you do is uh, do things like facial analysis. You can also do things like, uh, uh, you know, sentiment analysis. You can figure out and compare whether this is a face that you've seen before or you haven't, as well as do some really interesting things like do things like uh, object detection. We can actually, by mm. submitting an image, um, we can tell you uh, what some of the other objects are actually in that image as well as give you some visibility and a confidence factor around um, who you may have in frame. That's right. I think the the object one is interesting in that uh, I, one of the use cases I heard for this was that let's say you were selling your house online and you uploaded um, photos of your your property that you could actually use recognition to pull out all of the objects in the scene 
such as you know whether you had a, a swimming pool um, whether you're looking at the lounge room or um, the view etc and then you could then push those objects into say elastic search for example and then when users come to the site and they're searching for houses with a pool um, then your photos will automatically show up there yeah, and look, you've also got CCD footage coming in, some um, live video. You could do facial detection and also figure out who's actually there. So, uh, look, the cost, again, is, is incredibly low. It's um, a dollar uh, per 1,000 images. So if you've got lots of images today, um, as many of us do in S3, for example, you can use the CLI tools and uh, write a quick and dirty um, script to go through and uh, get some information out of your images. I know some of the other solution architects in my team have certainly been playing with uh, PowerShell and uh, Node libraries to be able to sort of see see what they've got in their personal um, image databases. All right, Pete, one of the other things that we announced, which I think was, uh, was of a lot of interest to a lot of people, was a managed distributed denial of service protection service, so a DDoS protection service, which comes in a couple of flavors. Um, talk us through the, the the standard flavor versus the advanced flavor. Yeah, so look, basically, um, you know, you may have heard about uh, DDoS, which is where lots and lots of um, devices across the internet send a request to a particular endpoint, like your website, perhaps. Um, so what we've got is essentially uh, the standard services available, and uh, as well as the advanced. And the idea is that um, at layer three and layer four, we mitigate uh, by being in line between the requester and the uh, the origin, being your website or your your EC2 instance, perhaps, uh, or your on-prem infrastructure, in fact. And if you use CloudFront, we will actually stop all of the potential attacks, um, uh, you know, like ICMP attacks, um, sync flooding. All of that stuff that happens in the IP stack will take care of and say, look, this is just garbage. It's noise. We are not going to carry this through all the way through the origin. So as long as you're using uh, CloudFront, uh, we take care of essentially going and applying a filter saying, hey, this is not real traffic. This is not really um, needs to be forwarded over to the origin. Uh, and because essentially you know, CloudFront operates at uh, generally at port uh, 80 and 443, uh, we certainly will stop everything that isn't that on those ports uh, from being carried forward. So that means that you know, at the edges, wherever that request is coming from, uh, we have lots of edges all around the world, uh, we will actually stop that traffic at that point in time as opposed to allowing it to get to your particular origin. So Pete, for those of us who are not as familiar with the, uh, the different networking layers um, as we should be, can you give us a quick summary of what layer three and layer four are? Yeah, so essentially think of those as these are the um, the network and transport layers um, which carry your web traffic in. So so TCP/IP, which is the the protocol that we've um, been using for many many years over the internet, um, have lots and lots of things for uh, controlling flow of packets or how big the packets are, um, and lots of people handcraft or you know use scripts because they're readily available uh, to just create lots of noise on the network, uh, and that network often you know which is in the lower layers of the uh, uh, TCP stack, uh, the, the protocol stack itself, can swamp your network as well as swamp the servers. So by using CloudFront, we actually become a shield in between the or between your, your, um, your website and the potential DDoS abusers. And we have th tens of thousands of devices sending noise essentially across the traffic. The routers don't do any analysis on that. They just go, hey, here's a packet destined for your website. I'm just gonna carry that traffic all the way through. So what we do is we say, hey, look, uh, unless this is um, layer seven, which is essentially web traffic, we're not gonna forward this on because this really is just noise. So 
most of the DDoS attacks tend to come from lots of different devices and all they're doing is just spewing out garbage on the network and we, we are essentially stopping that uh, to get getting through to your actual website right okay so that's uh, shield standard which covers everyone is that right so it's just it is you don't pay any extra for that it's, it is it is in place it's just uh, for that. all our customers precisely and we've also got the advanced Fantastic. version of that which, which gives you, you know, a little bit more because we give you um, protection of things like ELBs. We protect, um, and, and, you know, you get some reporting out of that as well. Um, there's also a dedicated response team that you get access to. So if you happen to be, um, you know, we, we occasionally have our customers coming back to us saying, hey, we've received a threat. Someone is extorting money from us. Um, they want, you know, uh, X amount of Bitcoins uh, deposited into this magic wallet. Uh, please help us. Uh, that's probably the service for you where you can actually be proactive and set up the advanced um, shield and get access to our support team and our response team to be able to control and give you more visibility as to what's happening. But fundamentally, CloudFront is really um, the service everybody should be using for using because it is so cost effective uh, so even if you don't go for the advanced features uh, you still get lots and lots of ddos mitigation out of the box the other interesting thing about that pete i think is that uh, shield will also protect origins that are not within aws so if you're using cloudfront cloudfront can also talk to a non aws server as its origin and uh, shield will protect those as well if you're using cloudfront Exactly right, because you know you get the benefits of our content delivery network um, just being the uh, you know the outer layer, uh, and it really doesn't matter where your origin servers reside. I mean, ideally, it'd be great to see on, a, on a, an AWS or an S3 bucket, but they could just as well be on-prem infrastructure, uh, which you have today, and you are essentially creating an onion skin, uh, you know, around your infrastructure and protecting yourself via um, via Shield. Fantastic. So while we're out at the edge, tell us about Lambda at the edge. Absolutely, which is currently in preview. So we announced it at reInvent. And the idea is that, um, as you probably have heard, Lambda's great. You know, you can build serverless applications uh, and you only pay for what you use. So the idea of Lambda Edge is now, imagine that you have a globally distributed application. Um, you're getting all the protection of, you know, of, uh, uh, of Shield as well. Uh, but now you'd like to make sure that your applications are far more responsive. Because quite often your code runs at the origin on your server somewhere or in a Lambda function. Um, and if your client happens to be halfway across the planet, um, you know, stuff that's static is, you know, can be well and truly delivered via content delivery network like CloudFront. Um, but what it also does means those requests that are dynamic where you create um, customized HTML has to be done and processed on the server. So with Lambda at the edge, what we give you is we give you four hooks into the request. So for example, you can have um, uh, lightweight JavaScript functions running at the edges wherever those requests come through. And we can actually tap into the, the viewer request, the origin request, the response as well for both the origin and the viewer. In other words, you can run a little bit of JavaScript uh, every time a request is made uh, to the origin, to your web server. Uh, you can do things like rewrite the, HD, the, the HTML request, you can rewrite the URL, you can even modify it, you can do some clever caching or modification. Uh, all of that stuff can be controlled. So that's a part of the HTTP request, the, re, the, the browser request. Uh, as it hits the edge, you can do some local processing at the edge, which I think is a, a really disruptive way because what it means is your applications can become a lot more responsive. Awesome, awesome. Now, while we're talking about applications and building things, what is going on with code build? 
Yeah, very exciting. So for those of you who've been tracking us, we have a large number of uh, what we call code star services. That's in a code pipeline, a code commit, and now we've added code build. So code build is really a fully managed build service. Um, so what does that mean? It means that instead of spending time setting up, scaling, and you know, uh, patching a whole fleet of build servers, so if you're doing DevOps, quite often you have an automated mechanism for building your application. So developer writes the code, they check it into a source control um, a, you know, a platform uh, like Git perhaps, or perhaps code commit, which is one of our services, or you push it into an S3 bucket. Uh, it's somewhere in, the, in some central repository. Um, what you then would do is you would then potentially have an automation server, or often called a continuous integration server, which would pick up that code and then spin up perhaps uh, an instance, and then you know go through all the build steps to build your application. So if your application is really large, then it could take many minutes or hours uh, to completely build your application. So with code build, what we do is we basically give you the ability to rapidly use our service to spin up an elastic bit of infrastructure to do this for you. And all you really need is to have a, a source repository. You define um, the build environment. So you tell us, uh, you know, is it a, a Java, a Python, a Ruby, a you know, uh, you know, a Docker container you're trying to create. Uh, you know, what is it? You know, how is that going to be built? You give us, you tell us what IAM roles, so identity and access management roles, you would like to allow for these build service to be actually spun up and have access to potentially AWS services. So you have security overlay. Uh, you then provide the build specification, which are essentially in a YAML format, which describes all of the build steps, all of the commands required to build your application. And you also tell us what type of, um, you know, instance type, you know, a compute type you're looking for, which is, you know, how much RAM do you think this build instance actually needs uh, and how many essentially, you know, cores or how much compute power do you require? So what we do behind the scenes really is just spin up, um, you know, containers behind the scenes that will take your application, it will check it out, It'll go through the steps, provision a container, a Docker container. It'll build your application. Um, you can basically, by the way, you can also get, um, you know, run things like um, Docker images as a part of that, either from Docker Hub or from the Amazon EC2 container registry. Uh, you get all of the, uh, the outputs from the build of your application. Um, you can see them in the actual AWS management console during the, during the build process, which means you've got visibility as things are happening. Um, and once your application has been built, uh, successfully otherwise, hopefully successfully, um, that we then push out all of the um, artifacts, all the executables and all of the artifacts that have been produced um, into S3. And you can also optionally encrypt those using the AWS key management service, which means that all of your artifacts are protected and cannot be accessed. And once that's finished, the whole process, we simply destroy the environment uh, and it's gone. So all of that stuff in the past you would be doing yourself, now the AWS code build service does it for you. Well, Pete, that sounds like that's going to take a lot of heavy lifting away from uh, from a lot of people. Absolutely, there's a lot of uh, you know activities that most people would be doing themselves. So that means a DevOps team that's been possibly been looking after this uh, can now go ahead and you know spend their energies on other things. Look, I'm super excited about it. As you can probably tell, uh, but that's not it. There's a lot more, <laughs> Russ. There's there is now also Batch, AWS, which is currently in preview. Can you tell us about that? Exactly. That's right. So talking of making things easier for people. So AWS Batch is really designed if you're someone who needs to spin up uh, a lot of different servers to run a lot of jobs and you want to run them very widely, as in you want to run them on a lot of machines, 
typically you would have to to manage that yourself. So AWS Batch really gives you a set of capabilities that allows you to then um, run that much more easily. And so what we'll actually do is we'll actually execute your jobs as containerized applications um, that are actually going to run on Amazon ECS, which is the which is our container service. So what are some so of the use really, cases, Russ? Why, why would I want to use Batch? Well, let's say that you want to run, for example, let's say you want to run a Monte Carlo simulation, Pete, for example. So Monte Carlo simulation is something that's used in, in a lot of um, risk models where you actually want to run a calculation many, many times um, across a large number of machines. What you don't want to do is have to manage those machines, um, spin them up, spin them down, etc. You basically want something to do that for you. And that's what that's what batch does. So perfect for any kind of application where you need to execute multiple jobs in parallel. Mm -hmm. So Monte Carlo simulations is a great example. Deep learning, genomics, risk models, animation rendering is another one, transcoding for, for media organizations, image processing simulations, the list goes on. Anything, anything that needs a lot of compute power um, across a lot of different servers. So that's what Batch does, and we've integrated it with a lot of the commercial and open source workflow engines as well to try and make it easy for you to control. Um, so some of the uh, the ones that we've got support for are things like Pegasus, Cromwell, uh, and Luigi mm -hmm. uh, to help you manage that whole thing. And what about pricing? Is this, uh, you said it's running on ECS. How, how do I get billed? So there's actually no additional charge for using Batch. Basically, you only pay for the resources underneath. Mm -hmm. So depending on how many machines, EC2 machines we spin up, um, you basically will, will pay for those. Now, in addition, you can also use the spot market as well, which is obviously key to a lot of these types of jobs where, you know, you're running a lot of machines. You want to try and get the cheapest price that you can for that compute. Uh, so you can use uh, spots. You can basically just tell us what percentage of the on-demand price you're willing to pay, mm -hmm. and then AWS Batch will take care of the rest for you. Oh, that's pretty cool. So, so speaking of controlling lots and lots of different things, like in a batch process, you know, especially when, it, when they're parallelized, um, what about step functions? That's another new service we've got. It is indeed. So this is this is really interesting, Pete. So basically, step functions make it much easier for you to coordinate the components of distributed applications uh, and microservices using a much more visual type of, uh, of workflow. So what this does is essentially you're going to define your application as a state machine, right? which really means that you've got a series of steps that together are going to tell the app how to behave. So the states in the, in your state machine, they might be individual tasks, they might be sequential steps, they might be parallel steps, there might be branch choices where you make a decision, do I go down this branch or this branch? There's also timers in there where you want the machine to wait for a, for a specified period of time, mm -hmm. uh, just so that you can much more easily um, chain those things together. Right, so these are very useful, pretty much useful for microservices as one example. So finite state machines have been around with, with us for quite a while. If you haven't seen them, go uh, check out Wikipedia for more details. But how would I use step functions with batch? That's a great question, Pete. So a lot of people um, have asked, you know, how do these two compare? And and really, they, they work together. So if you think about Batch is really a service that helps you to spin up the infrastructure that you need for your for your parallel application. Mm -hmm. Whereas the step functions is really about controlling um, the application as a series of steps. So what you could potentially do would be to use Batch to run the jobs in your application. 
and use the step functions to submit multiple batch jobs that might have interdependencies among them. Right. So speaking of interdependencies, but what if I've got a hybrid cloud? What if I'm still half on-prem, half in the cloud? Can I still use uh, step functions? You can indeed. So essentially the step functions will just combine workers that are running anywhere. So they could be um, on AWS or they could be uh, on-premise. So uh, so it's a nice way to, to, to bridge that divide as well. Very nice. Love it. Love it. Now, by the way, this is something very dear to me. And, you know, it took me five years to get my PhD. Um, but now <laughs> we've, we're giving away PhDs to our customers. Is that right? Well, in, in a manner of speaking, Pete, yes, not quite the same. Uh, it, we, not all of our customers are going to become doctors uh, suddenly overnight. But uh, we better explain. I think what you're we referring explain, to is yes. the, the personal health dashboard. Indeed. So tell us about that, Russ. What are PhDs? So the, the personal health dashboard is really an extension of the uh, of the previous health dashboards that we've had. So in the past, we've had health dashboards that have shown you uh, what's happening with different services um, across the cloud. Um, but customers said to us, look, that's fantastic, but really we we want to see the services that are relevant to, to us and to all, our organization. And so the personal health dashboard will just show you um, alerts that are really just for the services that you use in your account. So it's much easier to to see not only uh, what's happening right now, but also any scheduled maintenance that we have coming up. And you can also look look back as well and see um, uh, any issues that have been uh, in the past as well. So so really just a much more targeted dashboard to get you the information that you're after much more quickly. So it's very much like the public health dashboard that we've got, but it's more tailored to your specific uh, consumption. That's right. That's right. In addition, if you uh, are, belong to an organization that is on either business support or enterprise support, you've also got a health API as well. And you can use that to integrate um, your existing IT management tools into the um, into the PhD as well, which is quite nice. That is actually quite useful because a lot of our customers that I know have got, you know, lovely screens scattered around the IT departments where they do things like burn charts and service uptimes and uh this certainly would be quite a useful integration point. Love it, love it. Indeed, indeed. Now we've touched on uh, containers a couple of times in this episode, uh, and we've originally introduced uh, something called blocks. Tell us about blocks, Pete. Absolutely. So um, you may have heard us speak about um, uh, ECS, or the uh, EC2 container service, quite a lot over the last few episodes. And uh, you may recall that we've mentioned that um, we allow customers to be able to build their own schedulers and extend the service so that you can stack your containers in a very aggressive or perhaps you know relaxed way of doing it. So with the announcement of Blocks, Blocks is an open source project that lets basically our customers, so let's developers, um, and users to build custom schedulers and any additional tooling on top of the ECS service. So the idea behind Blocks is to provide an open source project. So you can go to um, GitHub, um, go to the Blocks repo, and you can check out what we've actually done. But fundamentally, um, we've given you the ability to create a custom um, custom schedulers. Um, you can extend and build your own custom dashboards, as we just touched upon earlier, through custom APIs and extensions. Um, so if you have specific use cases. You can have really fine-grained control over your um, elastic, you know, your ECS clusters, uh, and that's pretty important because we're finding more and more customers are having very specific requirements around an ECS cluster that's specific to a particular application. 
and those may need to scale you know in very unique um, you know controlled ways and you want to have lots and lots of insights um, you know for example you know we give you access and you know in the uh, in a blocks project uh, you have access to what we've recently released called the event stream uh, then what that does it delivers you know ECA, ECS container instance uh, task states uh, into CloudWatch. So you can do custom things like that yourself, extend the service, uh, it has an API so you can talk to the local cluster and control it. So it's really a nice you know, project that you know, we've open sourced, made available to everybody so that you can take it extended and get a lot more value out of the ECS service. And as you've heard so far in the show, we are using you know, ECS behind lots and lots of other services. So uh, hopefully we're giving you some idea of you know, how creative you can get when you have access to being able to launch lots and lots of uh, tasks and, and services um, across your entire fleet. So you're maximizing the consumption of your EC2 instances. Well, Pete, that sounds very exciting for uh, a lot of developers. Now, uh, talking about all things development, take a quick breath and then tell us about X-Ray. Yeah, I'm actually about to uh, expire. My voice is just giving out here. So I may have to get replaced with Lex. Um, we'll have to look for the, uh, Dr. Pete 2.0, just like Rust 2.0. <laughs> but I digress. So X-Ray is another great um, service that we've actually announced. Uh, it's in preview. And essentially what X-Ray is, it's a distributed tracing service. So think of it as when you build very large applications, you know, uh, which are multi-tiered, um, you know, microservices are a great example of this. Um, it becomes really hard to understand what is happening in your entire application. You know, it's, it's a huge, uh, you know, application which can be built up from hundreds and hundreds of components, um, and it becomes very, very difficult to identify and troubleshoot uh, perhaps root causes of performance or issues or service degradations or errors. Um, so X-Ray provides you, essentially the idea is to provide you with an end-to-end -end view of all of the requests that are flowing throughout your entire application stack. It collects information and then gives you the ability to then visualize and get a map, essentially a view of all the underlying components and how they're actually behaving which means that you can then start to analyze and better understand your application, whether it's in production or in development. Uh, there's probably more time spent in development, I would, I would expect, as you build the application. But it's designed for, you know, um, highly complicated, multi-tier applications that are, you know, consisting of lots and lots of services. So it's a, it's a nice way to be able to, you know, get access to um, what is going on uh, throughout a call stack, if you like, to speak developer now, if you look at the call stack and you're calling between different services in a multi-tier architecture, um, what we really do is we we can actually, we give you access to be able to inject more information. So throughout every single step that you actually go through, um, you can actually put in additional information so you can provide annotations uh, and additional metadata for the traces, which means that you can tag and uh, you know essentially filter almost down to the uh, application code level and say this is what's happened here. And as these calls go from tier to tier to tier, uh, we also have timing information, so you can get visibility how long it's taken for something uh, to run and execute. Um, so that way you can have you know a view of the performance, look a view of where the bottlenecks perhaps are, uh, are in your uh, in your call stacks, aka throughout the, those tiers. Um, and um, this is currently supported on EC2 instances, including ECS within containers. Uh, if you're running Beanstalk, you can do this as well as um, inside the Amazon API gateway. Um, so if you're building your apps in Java or Node or .NET, uh, all of these are supported and uh, AWS Lambda is just around the corner. 
Yeah, and you mentioned it's in preview, which it is. Uh, but interestingly, it's in preview almost uh, everywhere, so almost in every region, which uh, which is great. So if you wanted to get on and have a play with it while it's in preview, uh, you can. Yeah, and look, when we talk about you know telemetry and visibility, um, you know we've also released another service called Pinpoint, uh, but this time it's actually a little bit more up the stack. Russ, can you tell our, our listeners about Pinpoint? Yeah, so Pinpoint is really designed to make it easier for you to run targeted campaigns uh, to improve user engagement, but specifically for mobile applications. Now, there's basically two halves to this, Pete. The first is to actually, obviously, get the information um, that you need from the device itself so that you can analyze user engagement, uh, demographics, etc. Mm-hmm. And then you can use that to start to segment your audience. And you can obviously, you might have other data that lives in, lives in S3 or Redshift that you want to um, to marry with your mobile data to do that segmentation. And then from there, you can then start to send targeted notifications um, and personalize that to each user in your campaign. Right. Which, which, is, uh, which is, takes a lot of the pain out of doing, doing that, whole, um, that whole pipeline. A couple of the interesting points around this, uh, people always ask things like, um, is the data going to be cached if the user's device is offline, for example, so people obviously aren't aren't online all the time, uh, the answer to that is yes. So if you're using the AWS mobile SDK, you can cache the data on the device and it'll be uploaded when they they next connect. Mm -hmm. And it will also make sure that we optimize the network as well. So we'll actually batch the events um, and send them once a minute um, so that we obviously don't, um, aren't sending stuff uh, constantly. And you can also specify the transport whether it's cellular and Wi-Fi uh, or Wi-Fi only. Yes, yeah, so it's a really nice way of running your campaigns, essentially, whereby you can set controls around how often you ping somebody and what's going on. And yeah, the nice thing about it is actually getting the insights and visibility as to the levels of engagement. That's right. Now, the, the next question, obviously, that comes up for people already in this space is how is this different from AWS Mobile Analytics? So the answer is that is that the mobile analytics piece was all about that first half of Pinpoint, which is obviously gathering the data from the from the users. And so now that mobile analytics is actually part of, of Amazon Pinpoint, because obviously um, uh, what it does is a superset of what uh, mobile analytics does. So that now they're very much uh, part of that one package, but adds that extra step, which is the, the ability to run, to then run the campaigns. Perfect. Now, so that's kind of gluing things together. Now, speaking of glue, we've also got another service called Glue. Tell us about Pete, that. What a seg- what a fantastic segue. <laughs> you see, I, I don't think Pete 2.0 would have segued as well as you can. I'm sure he'd be a little bit more robotic and a little bit more woody I about think, it. <laughs> I think your job is safe. Yeah, so, so Glue is a very exciting service uh, for those of us in the, in the data space. Now, this is a pre-announcement that we mentioned at, at reInvent. And really... It's, it's a fully managed ETL service. So ETL, if you're not familiar, it stands for Extract, Transform, and Load. And really, ETL has become a bit of a catch-all for any kind of step that you need to do within your data pipeline where you need to extract data from somewhere, potentially transform it, and then load it into another database or another um, data repository. So this is something that a lot of customers spend a lot of time on. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to introduce a fully managed service to make this um, much, much easier for you. So there's a couple of components to this. So if you think about some of the steps that you normally take in your 
big data pipelines. So you need to to build a data catalog, for example, of all the different data sources that you have. So Glue can help you do that. So you'd register your sources with Glue and it can then help you to discover the, the data that you have. You then want to potentially run some transformations on that data. So Glue can also help you do that. It'll generate transformations in Python for you, which you can then edit or, or add your own to. And then you obviously then want to schedule and run those jobs. And again, that's something that Glue can help you with. You can schedule them to run at a specific time, or you can potentially use more of an event-based approach uh, using Lambda, for example. Now, your jobs will be run on Apache Spark, uh, which is, as we've spoken about before, has become is rapidly becoming the um, the execution engine of choice, which means that we can scale that up or down depending on how quickly you want that job to finish, and it will manage things like retries, et cetera, et cetera. So a very exciting service, covers off a lot of different components in the pipeline, but we really feel that it's going to make that building that end-to-end big data pipeline much easier for, for customers. And as I said, that was a pre-announcement, and we'll bring you more information on that in subsequent episodes, Pete. Very cool. Sounds like the kind of thing you know, large organizations would be using. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, very, uh, a very exciting service. And I think the great thing about it is, yes, we're going to take a lot of the heavy lifting, but we're also going to leave it open so that you can then write your own transformations as well because you don't want it to be just a black box that does something that you're not quite sure what's going in there you want to actually see exactly uh, the transformations that are happening within the uh, within that service absolutely and look we're getting close to running out of time in the show russ so um i want to also share one of one of the finals announcements which was around organizations which is currently in preview in us east um and organizations is essentially um a service that allows you for new ways to essentially control all of your AWS accounts. Russ, how many accounts do you have in AWS? Uh, I have two, Pete. Okay, and have you tried to set up trusts and things between them to manage them so it feels like a seamless experience? Uh, I haven't, but I know that a lot of people do struggle with that. So I have customers who have hundreds of accounts and uh, they, they, they have to run scripts and they have to log into every account and set up trusts. And, you know, when you're running a, a reasonably small workload, um, then that's pretty controllable. But when you're running an enterprise and you've got hundreds of different teams all with their own accounts uh, for potentially, you know, prod, dev, test, um, you can actually get quite a lot of uh, account sprawl which also means that it creates a bit of a challenge for the security folks in the organization to keep a lid and control all over the customer accounts that have been spun up in their organizations. So you can now use um, AWS organizations to arrange all of your accounts into groups and you can put them into what we call organizational units and you can apply um, policies to them. Now we call these things uh, service control policies and they give you the ability to configure one policy and have it apply to the entire organization, uh, which means um, entire organization uh, or individual accounts. So the beauty of that is you now have a mechanism for controlling lots and lots of things. You don't actually have to log in and make sure all the policies are in sync. You set up a master account and in that master account, you define your service um, policies and these will then affect all of those accounts. Now, one other cool thing that you can do with organizations is that you can create brand new AWS accounts. In the past, you'd have to go through, you have to go through the verification process, put in your credit card. Now, all, the, all you need to do is uh, call the API, which creates you a brand new AWS account in your organization. Um, you simply specify the email address in the account name. 
and the rest is taken care of. All of the other attributes are inherited from the master account. And the master account potentially could be the account you've set up as a master payer account. And you know the idea behind the master payer account is all of the accounts that, that are linked to it, uh, the entire bill gets consolidated into one single account and you just pay within that single account and you get visibility of consumption. So now we give you the ability to create brand new accounts as well as invite existing accounts. So if you've got hundreds of accounts in your organization, you can invite them, they can join your organization, you can apply your service control policies uh, to all of those accounts and presto, even back in full control, security policies applied, um, identity and access management is configured correctly. Um, and by the way, it's very important to call out that the master account has different policies because you certainly don't want to lock yourself out from the account. So it's a very nice, uh, clever way of allowing large organizations which have lots and lots of uh, AWS accounts to be able to control them in a secure manner. So, uh, you know, power to the, to, uh, power to the people. Awesome, fantastic, Pete. Well, I think we've uh, we've run out of time for this episode, but uh, lots of uh, great stuff coming out of reInvent this year. Absolutely, I've been super excited. Like we said in, in the previous episode, it's like uh, lots of Christmas presents all under the one Christmas tree, uh, and we just can't get through the wrapping fast enough, or rather unwrapping. That's right. Well, uh, have a great break, Pete, and uh, listeners, and we'll see you in the new year. Guys, thanks for tuning in to Tech Chat this year. We really enjoyed having you listen to us and thanks for all your awesome feedback that we received. Have great holidays and we'll speak to you in 2017. Signing off, this is Russ. And this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.